Hello, and welcome to the Jubilee Church Podcast. Jubilee Church exists to help all people know God, find family, discover purpose, and make a difference. If you would like to learn more or connect with us, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. The year was 1994. I was a sophomore in college. I came home for the weekend. And uh, when I was going from point A to point B, I was pulled over by the police for speeding. Now, I don't care who you are. When I mean, that's a nerve-wracking experience. I mean, I just went by a police officer on the way over here. And, uh, you know, you're just, you know, am I doing everything right? Is there anything wrong? It just, it just messes with you. And so I, w- it was a, I wasn't thinking clearly. And so when he asked me for my license and, and registration, I just gave it to him. And uh, they, they go back to the car and they are taking a really long time. Now, if you've never been pulled over before, it's not a good sign if they're taking a really long time. So I'm freaking out here. And then it hit me. Um, the license that I gave them was a fake ID. Uh, It was an old license that I had paid someone uh, to change my birth year from 1975 to 1970. Uh, And yes, I am the pastor. And so I was... uh, And we believe in forgiveness. I'm freaking out. I'm racking my brain for excuses. And suddenly, in the midst of my anxiousness, there was a moment of clarity. Because I remember a high school friend of mine. And his dad was a police officer, Officer Drummond. And he sat uh, us down once and he said, boys, stay out of trouble. But if you ever do get in trouble, just tell them I'm your uncle and uh, but you can make sure you make it count. You can only do this once. And I'm thinking there is no time like the present. <laughs> and so they, they come back and they ask me, hey, you know, we found out something interesting. Our records show that you're 19 years old, but this license says that you are 24. Do you have any idea why that's true? And I'm just like, Officer Trumpman is my uncle. Officer Trumpman is my uncle. <laughs> They're like, what? Officer Drummond is my uncle. And they kind of look at each other and uh, they, they talk a little bit and, and uh, they come back and they say, Officer Drummond is a, a respected man. He says, um, and then he gives me back my fake ID. And he says, I don't know what you're getting your uncle for Christmas, but it better be good because he just got you out of a whole lot of trouble. And um, the question uh, is, why was I, why did I get, why did that happen to me? Why did I, why did, why was I treated that way? Some may say, well, man, you're just like, you're a savvy dude. And like, you, you kind of met the right people and, and um, you know, you, you, you know, you were, uh, yeah, people were warm to you and uh, you knew what to say at the right moment. Others would say, well, it's because you're privileged because that you were born uh, in the right place, uh, the right gender, the right skin color. And today we're continuing our series, Controversial Jesus, and our topic today is Jesus in Privilege. And this is very controversial 
subject. And it's not lost on me the irony of an able-bodied, educated white male from a two-parent home is delivering this talk. But let me once again just say that I don't preach subjects because I'm an expert on that subject. My daughter, before she left, we're chatting about a few things. And she's like, how do you preach subjects that you don't know much about? As if to say you do that a lot. And, um, <laughs> and my answer to her, my answer to you is I'm not coming to you on this subject as an expert or, or even someone who doesn't have something to learn. But I'm coming to this as a pastor who wants to shepherd his people in this time and place. And the subject of privilege is right in the middle of our cultural moment. And to say that we're divided over this as a society is an understatement. The idea of, of privilege is not a new concept, um, but what is a new concept is it, that it's associated with, with justice that is right, right and wrong. Sean Ferguson said this, unear, it, what, this is what it is, unearned access to resources or social power that are, read, that are only readily available to some people because of their social group membership and advantage or immunity granted to or enjoyed by one social group above and beyond the common advantage of all other groups. And these types of privileges could be, but not limited to race, religion, class, gender, citizenship, orientation. And the idea is if you have more of one or more of these factors, things will be readily available to you that they're not available to others, or it'll keep you out of trouble. Um, where others would get in trouble. And like I said, this is a deeply controversial series or subject, which is why it made our controversial series. And some people on one side of the argument would say that would just dismiss the whole idea as social justice warriors looking for another cause to point out the flaws in the world. And others would say that this holds the explanatory power of why it's been so hard for them legally, socially, and economically. Uh, one person described privilege as like playing a game of Monopoly. And the game of Monopoly has been going on for an hour. And even though it's already been going on for an hour, you're just delighted to, you know, to be a part of the game. But because it's been going on for an hour, all the best properties are taken and they're loaded with hotels and houses. And so you, you start the game and you don't have any money uh, or you get the, the initial amount and you're just trying to get around the board and pass go and to collect your $200 and avoid getting on these other properties. And if you've ever played Monopoly before in that position, it is no longer a game of joy. It's a game of fear. And uh, you're just praying that you don't land on anyone else's property. And after a few rounds, after you're robbed of everything that you have, you realize the safest place for you is in jail. And so this is what many groups would say, this is what it feels like to participate in our culture. The problem is structural. And we need to hit reset, stop the game, and redistribute the property. This has produced um, quite a bit of, of, of anger and rage because our culture, America, is, I mean, we love, we're, we love success and progress. We love up and to the right. We love up and to the right. I mean, everything positive is, has the word up in it, like upper class, upscale, or my favorite, upgrade. You know, I'm flying next week, and I'm upgrade. I'm praying for upgrade. And, or anything down is bad, you know, downscale, down and out, downward. That's all bad. Down is bad, up is good. And we, we love this. And, and this, this idea of progress and is, is really quite honestly, brought a lot of hope to a lot of people. A lot of people want this, um, this progress that, that our culture provided, but when we don't get it, we feel like 
we have been robbed. Uh, James David Davidson Hunter said this, really reflecting a lot on what Nietzsche said, but he, this word resentment, which is grounded in a narrative or injury, at least perceived injury, a strong belief that one has been, has been, has been or is being wronged. The root of this is a sense of entitlement a group holds. Over time, the perceived injustice becomes central to the person's and the group's identity. James Baldwin famously said, to be a black man in this country and to be relatively conscious is to be in rage almost all of the time. And so for some people, the cause that's holding them back financially and socially is, a, is an indicator to them that life is systematically unfair toward people like them. And so that's one side of the, the continuum that, that privilege is, um, um, is an issue of rights. It's an issue of justice, injustice, and it should be deconstructed and it produces rage and anger. On the other side of the continuum, you see that privilege is viewed through the lens of individual responsibility. And the idea that life being systematically unfair is just a myth. So forget privilege, just worry about personal responsibility. So one of the big figureheads for this view of privilege is a guy named Thomas Sowell. Um, he's an African-American, an American economist and a social theorist. And he's written several books and he gets interviewed all the time. And he often makes the case that it isn't systematic privilege that's holding people back. It's victimology, it's individual responsibility. And see, so he would often push back on the idea um, that he would push back on this idea of life being systematically unfair. And he would add to it that all the any attempt to uh, deconstruct this privilege actually makes things worse. And so he would say that the war on poverty program, he'd point to evidence that the war on poverty programs in the 1960s have had devastating effects economically. It's had a devastating effect on the family in these black neighborhoods prior to 1960, 87% of children were raised in two-parent homes. Today, that stands at 28%. Murder rates in these uh, neighborhoods have doubled um, since the, these, um, these actions were taking place in the 1960s. And Jason Riley, another guy, he'd, he'd make a similar case. he makes a similar case in his book, Please Stop Helping Us, as a way of saying it's not, it's not uh, these structures, it's about individual responsibility. So they'd say, okay, what do I do then they would, to, be, to get ahead? And they point to three things. Finish high school, don't get pregnant, and get a job. If you do these things, you will not... Uh, be poor in America, but if you don't do these things, you'll likely be poor regardless of the color of your skin. So once again, you have, uh, you have the framework that of, of privilege is about rights and, and justice. And on the other side of it, you have uh, a paradigm of individual responsibility and the dominant emotion over here. So over here, it's, it's rage and anger. Over here, um, it's one, defensiveness. And so this idea, uh, if, 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 someone, if, you're, if for some, if they're told that they have privilege, they get very, very defensive. Everything I have, I've earned. I've not hurt anyone. Nothing has been given to me. So there's a defensive posture. Um, or paralyzing guilt. Man, I get it. Life's unfair, but what can I do about it? I wasn't there. Has nothing to do with me. I'm not even sure I understand it. And every time I try to understand it, I just feel attacked because of my cultural clumsiness. So I'm just going to slip through the back door out in the suburbs and just forget the whole thing. So let me ask you a question. What comes up in your heart when you hear the word privilege? 
Is it defensiveness? Is it guilt? Is it resentment? Is it rage? And just to remind you, if you're not familiar with Galatians 5, none of those are fruits of the Spirit. So what is Jesus? What's his response to privilege? Because that's ultimately what we're after. We want to wade through the cultural noise to hear what Jesus has to say. What do you think of privilege? Philippians 2. Paul says, have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, if you are a Christian, if Christ is your Lord, he's your savior, this is a mindset that he wants you to have. And it's available to you if you would receive it. This is his mindset. Who though was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So to have equality with God is a privileged position. He didn't grab a hold of it. He didn't, he didn't grasp it. What did he do then? He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He had the nature of a servant. I have servant reactions now and then. You may have servant reactions. He had servant instincts. I occasionally do servant things. We occasionally do servant things. He had the nature of a servant. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. Why? You know, what did he, he do? Well, he became obedient to death, even death on the cross. He was equal with God. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He never used the fact that he was God to his own advantage. He never walked in the room and said, hey, I don't know if you know this or not, but right here it says God. And so me and my boys, we'll take these seats right here. Never did that. Never, ever, ever used the fact that he was God to his personal advantage, but redirected that for the sake of others, including you and I. And he made himself nothing. Nobody made him nothing. That's important. He made himself nothing. And he humbled himself, embraced the cross, the public shame, death outside the city. The God of the universe left his throne and used his privilege for others. So he did not deconstruct privilege. He did not defend privilege. He redirected it. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So regardless of where you're at on the continuum, what you think is the best outlook for society, the pining after success that our culture has to offer, our temptation is to either want to defend it, to protect it, or to take it from someone else. But Jesus here willingly offers it, redirects it for others. The Bible is very clear that that we are all privileged people, that everything that we have is not doing because that we're amazing people, but because he's amazing. Every good and gift, uh, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. In the Old Testament and Deuteronomy, be, beware. Be, I, I want to warn you here. I want to warn you of a mindset. What is that? That you would say in your heart, my power and my might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. 
you should remember the Lord your God. I don't care what culture says, but if to get in the mindset that I have because I have because I deserve what I have is, a, is not a godly mindset. We, we have been, we have, regardless of whatever you have, if you, if you are breathing, anything north of breathing air right now is privilege to you. Well, that itself is privilege to you too, so there you go. Anything short of being six feet under is privilege to you. But at the same time, because it all comes from God, um, we shouldn't try to adjust that either. He's the one, I did not choose to be, yes, being American is a privilege, but I didn't choose that. But God did. God allotted the periods and boundaries of dwelling places, and also we have multiple parables, such as Matthew 25, where Jesus talks about the things that he's given us. And, and these are things that he's entrusted to us. So regardless of whatever you have, money, social power, whatever it is, however you define it, whatever it is that you have was given to you by God. And the amount that you have, whether five, two, or one, was given to you by God or not given to you by God. And so that's to be protected as well. The first temptation in the garden was to focus on their lack and not their abundance that God had given them. God had given them all things. And the temptation that the lie of the enemy came and said that you don't have what you need. There's something he's holding out on you. And it's not, it's not incidental that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was in the middle of the garden because Adam and Eve had to walk past pears and apples and oranges, all the things that he provided to get to the one thing he said no to. They had to ignore the abundance that God had given them to focus in on what they lacked. And then when you become a Christian, the Bible says that God has blessed you with every spiritual blessing from above and that you and I have everything that we need for life and godliness. And so we have to caution ourselves when we, when we go down this road. But the regardless is, whoever you are, that we are very privileged and God has privileged us. And the question is, is what is the purpose for that? It's not to defend. It's not to deconstruct. It is to redirect. And we do it three different ways that Paul says. We consider others, we humble ourselves, and we empty ourselves. We consider others, we, we humble ourselves, we empty, we consider others, humble our, yourself, empty yourself. Um, Philippians 2, Paul says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, I mean, if there's a spiritual pulse, those are my words, complete my joy, but I think that was really what he's getting at. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Selfish ambition or conceit. The, the Greek word there communicates this idea of a politician campaigning for himself. So if you want to take on the mind of Christ, never, never be like a politician campaigning for what you deserve or what you've done. But in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Why? Is because they are? No. 
but count them that way. Consider them as more important. How many of you, when you walked into this room, were like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe I get to be in the same room with them? It's possible then that we may have some work to do in considering others as more important than ourselves. You remember, if you've been to a wedding recently, if you've been to a wedding ever, <laughs> if you're not the bride, you, so the bride comes in and everyone stands up and oohs and ahs. When you can't walk in the room, no one noticed. <laughs> the Bible is essentially saying, here's how you treat people. You treat everyone like they are the bride. And don't be offended when no one notices. Don't be like a politician campaigning for yourself, but consider others as consideration is more important than yourself. I can't believe I get to be a part of this. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. If you get a group of people who authentically not campaign, that, that authentically doesn't campaign for, campaign for their own interest, but for the interest of others, I mean, you just open up a new possibility for the world. So number one, take the posture of the consideration of others. And this seems like a small phrase, but what it means, it means to lift the vision of your life beyond yourself and your family. That's what it means. It means to lift your vision beyond. When you consider your days and your dollars, when you consider your life, it means consider others means to lift the vision of your life beyond yourself and your family. Francis Schaeffer, who is one of the great intellectual statesmen of a previous generation, as he was dying, blasted a warning shot for the American church. And this was his warning. He said, the American church has to care more than just about being, than just about personal peace and affluence. If the borders of your heart extend only to those you know and care about in your efforts to provide, extend only to the borders of their provision, the church will die and become irrelevant. And if you listen carefully, you can almost hear the death rattle that personal peace and affluence have brought to the modern church. A phrase that is outside the mind of Christ is when someone asks you why you're making a decision, you say, I'm just doing what's best for me and my family. That is not the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ is that you would consider others when you think about the vision for your life and how you spend your days, how you spend your dollars, and how you think about where you pour out your energy. This is, I mean, you read the Old Testament and these prophets are just raging against this mindset. You think God, God's like, you think this is what I require from you? These services where you come in and lift your hands and, and you know, provide all these sacrifices? yet ignore the plight of those who are outside of your family and outside of your people? That's what Jesus is getting at in the, when he turns over the, the tables in the temple. It's what 1 Corinthians 11 is all about. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, this, this church was super gifted. The Corinthian church was super gifted comparatively wealthy, the wealthy city that is. And there's this part in 1 Corinthians 11 about 
communion. And, and we typically get this wrong. We typically, where it says like, never receive the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And so what most people think is like, oh, I gotta be like, make sure I repent of every sin before I receive communion. Which repentance is never a bad idea, but that's not what this is about. Because what, the, what communion is about, communion is about receiving the Lord's Supper. What that is about is about the blood and the broken body of Jesus, which, which tore down, which gave us access to God vertically. And this vertical access we have with God created a new horizontal reality where there's not, no longer Jew or Gentile, broke down every wall of hostility, no longer Jew or Gentile, no longer male or female, no longer uh, f- uh, free and slave, master and slave, created a new reality. And so back then when they received communion, by the way, it wasn't grape juice and a stale wafer. It was a full-on meal. And so what was happening is the wealthier Christians um, came early. They ate all the food. They drank all the wine to the point of intoxication. And then the, the poorer believers who were, worked um, hourly jobs, they show up late. There is no food, there is no drink, and there really isn't a place to sit. And the reason why Paul is saying you're doing this in an unworthy manner is that the gospel is about what God created, this new reality amongst people. And you are saying in the way that you are doing church, in fact, he says that your services do more harm than good. He says you are saying and how you behave that in this church, there is master and slave. There is a division of who's in and who's out. And that's why they're doing it in an unworthy manner. Not considering other people. I'm just doing what's best for me and my family brings death to the church community and the people of God. We should be considerate of others. We should consider others' interests, not just our own. Secondly, we've got to humble ourselves. I love how John Dixon, he communicates humility, which I think is really the heart of what Paul's getting at here in this poem in Philippians 2. Humility is a noble choice to forego your status, deploy your resources, or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. The humble person is marked by a willingness to hold power in service of others. First, this is important, pay attention. Humility presupposes your dignity. The one, the one being humble acts from a, from a height, so to speak, as the lowering etymology makes clear. True humility assumes the dignity or strength of the one possessing the virtue, which is why it should not be confused with having low self-esteem or being a doormat for others. In fact, I would go so far as to say that it is impossible to be humble in the real sense without a healthy, healthy sense of your own worth and abilities. Do you hear that? Second, humility is willing. It is a choice. Otherwise, it is humiliation. Finally, humility is social. It is not a private act of self-deprecation, banishing proud thoughts, refusing to talk about your achievements, and so on. I would call this simply modesty. But humility is about redirecting your powers, whether physical, intellectual, financial, or structural, for the sake of others. And I want to argue that this, in our fragmented, polarized society that we live in, this this kind of humility is the call to, of the church. In our anxiousness and fear, we will be tempted to defend our rights or fight to get them. 
Humility does neither. It's a call to prayer and dependence for what we need. In fact, Paul says this in Philippians 4, a few chapters over. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, that's huge, let your request be made known to God. So on one hand, you have anxiousness and fearfulness. On the other side, you have humility and gratitude. Science, I don't know if you know this or not, scientists have figured out that the same part of your brain that produces anxious thoughts produces thoughts of gratitude. In other words, it is impossible, they say, to be anxious and grateful at the same time. You have to choose. And Paul here says, he says, do not be anxious, but in everything, be grateful. And you get to that place of gratitude and not anxiousness when you humble yourself. And when you humble yourself, you get a sober assessment of who you really are. And you realize like, hey, God is pretty big and he can take care of my needs. I'm going to live dependently, not independently. So I don't have to defend what I have. I don't have to fight for it. I can release it and I'm going to humble myself. And when I humble myself, I am dependent in a posture of prayer and gratitude takes over anxiousness. And then lastly, we empty ourselves. That is, we, get, we begin just to give our life away. We begin to just disperse our influence. We, just, we start to give away our time. We start to give away our dollars. We just start to disperse it. We redirect it away from ourselves and to other people. We get this promise in Isaiah 58. It says, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom shall be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desires in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters does not fail, that you will be blessed and God will put you up. And in fact, after this, after this uh, first part of Philippians 2, when you kind of go over in the next verses, uh, Paul, I think it's in verse 14 where he says that, that God wants you to pop out like lights amongst a crooked generation, that you'd be this alternate community, that you would think about it completely different. Instead of buying into the vision that comes from the left or buying into the vision that comes from the right, that you buy into a vision that comes only from God. And you begin to pop out like, like, like he will. You see, it says that Jesus was at the highest place, right? Don't get any higher in God. And his greatness was not defined by how high he ascended, but how low he ascended. And because he humbled himself more than anyone, he gets the best name. He gets the name above all names that every knee will bow and every tongue. Will, and the same is true for you. Your greatness will not be defined and how high you ascend in this life. So you don't have to be fear. You don't have to protect it. And you don't have to chase after it. Your greatness will be defined by letting it go. Whether you have five or two or one, what God wants you to do is to let it go for the sake of others and the sake of his name. Therefore, God has exalted and bestowed upon him the name is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why don't we stand? This is happening.
I wish I had the time to talk about all the ways that this is happening in our church where people are just intentionally giving away their time, giving away their margin, giving away their money in, in ways that would probably make your jaw drop. They did what? Are you kidding me? But I don't want you to be impressed with them, but I do want you to be impressed with Jesus. In John 13, verse 3, talks about something Jesus did that was just mind-blowing. It says that, that knowing that the Father had put all things in his hands, like he had all power, all resources, he could have done whatever he wanted in the manner he wanted to do it. I don't know what you would do if you had all the money you you needed or all the money in the world or all the time in the world or all the power in the world. What would you do? Jesus, knowing that he had all power, all things in his hands, says that the next verse says that he takes off his outer garment and he begins to wash the feet of his disciples. He could have done anything. And then he says, you call me master and Lord. In other words, you, you are rightly recognizing that I am above you. Now see me get, even though I am above you, watch me get beneath you and serve you. This I've done as an example for you. And then he says this, I think in verse 18, he says, he says, if you know these things, if you know these things, and we know these things, I mean, this is like Christianity 101. Oh, you mean I'm supposed to serve? I'm supposed to not be selfish. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. In other words, even, even in giving yourself away, he ultimately doesn't say, you know what? These people over here, they really need it. These people over here, they really need it. He doesn't talk about what they need. He talks about what you need. This isn't, about helping someone else. This is about you having your heart changed and molded in the nature and character of Jesus who did not consider what he had something to be held on to, but he let it go. He redirected it for you and for me. Jesus, we just thank you. We just want to honor you as the name above all names. And we are, we just pray for the the mindset to consider others. God, we pray, Lord, for the revelation and the desire to, to be humble. Lord, whatever our position is, Lord, that we would lower ourselves. And God, give us the courage, give us the courage to empty ourselves, to empty our calendars, to empty our pocketbooks, to empty our vision, to do nothing out of selfish ambition. But in everything, Lord, that we do, that we would count others as more significant, not looking to our own interests, but the interests of others. This was your mindset, which is available to us. And God, we just pray for the power of the Holy Spirit. God, I pray you protect us 
from legalism, from moralism, that would be proud of our own accomplishments. But God, we pray, Lord, we would courageously pursue this life of humility, this path of Calvary that you so humbly and graciously and wonderfully walked down. 